Ezekiel chapter 19 will come to us in two parts. And the first part is the lament for the young lions. A lament for the young lions. Chapter 19, verse 1. As for you, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, What was your mother? A lioness among lions. Or your translation may say a great lion among lions. And that's probably even more accurate there. She lay down among young lions. She reared her cubs. When she brought up one of her cubs, he became a lion. And he learned to tear his prey. He devoured men. Then nations heard about him. He was captured in their pit, and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. When she saw, as she waited, that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. And he walked about among the lions. He became a young lion. He learned to tear his prey. He devoured men. He destroyed their fortified towers and laid waste their cities. And the land and its fullness were appalled because of the sound of his roaring. And then nations set against him on every side from their provinces, and they spread their net over him, and he was captured in their pit. They put him in a cage with hooks and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him in hunting nets so that his voice would not be heard or would be heard no more on the mountains of Israel. Lions were common in the Middle East in that day, especially common throughout the land of Israel. The Bible speaks of lions many times, uh, describing them as in the thickets around the Jordan, Jeremiah 49, verse 19, uh, living up in caves and in crags on Mount Hermon, Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 8, and also inhabiting the Judean desert, Isaiah tells us in chapter 30, verse 6. So lions were everywhere in the land, a common animal well known to the Jewish people. In fact, so well known, some of you may recall this, there are five Hebrew words for lion. Five descriptive words, and the book of Job chapter 4, Job uses all five altogether. Let me read it to you. Job chapter 4, verse 10. The roaring of the lion. There's the first word, and that word is Ari. There's a city in Israel, a town called Ariel. And that is of the lion. And so Ari just means lion. It is the most common word for lion in the Hebrew. And then he says, The roaring of the young lion, Ari, and the voice of the fierce lion, Shakal, is the fierce lion. It even sounds fierce. And the teeth of the young lions, Kafir, are broken. The old lion, Laish, perishes for lack of prey, and the whelps of the lioness, Labiyah, are scattered. So those are the five different words. Ari, lion. Shakal, fierce lion. Kafir, young lion. Laish, old lion. And Labi, lioness, or truly great lion. That's the word for the great lion. Ezekiel uses just three of these words. Descriptively. In verse 2, a lioness among lions, she laid down among young lions. And so what that says right there is the lioness, the labi, the great lion among lions, Ari. Among the common lions, there's one that stands out. There's a great one. And that is speaking of Judah. Judah personified is the great lion among many lions. The lion that stands out. The many lions could be the rest of the tribes of Israel or perhaps the nations round about. But Judah is the great one. Among lions, she lay down among her young lions. And that word young lions is important too because he'll continue to use it. It's uh, kafir, kafir for young lion. Judah personified is the great lion among lions because there's great nobility in Judah. After all, Judah is the lion that King David rose from. And from King David would come Solomon and that royal kingly line. David is at the head of that pride, if you will. The pride of Judah. The lion pride of Judah. But the real reason for Judah's greatness is the root and the descendant of David, Jesus Christ, who comes from that tribe of Judah. He's the reason the lion is great. He's always the reason for greatness. If there is greatness in you, greatness achieved in your life, it is only because of the presence of Jesus. Because only the greatness of Jesus Christ will last. 
And so Jesus' presence there in Judah brings about the greatness of the lion. Genesis 49, verse 9, Jacob spoke this about Judah, saying, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a great lion, Labi, who dares rouse him up. So there's a great lion we begin with, a lioness among lions. She laid down among her young lions, so she bore cubs, young lions, kafir. And when she brought up one of her cubs, verse 3, he became a lion. That word lion there is not ari, it's kafir. And you need to note that. Kafir. Because the two lions of this lament never mature. They never move beyond Kafir. They are only always Kafir, the young lions. They are never Labi, the great lion. They never achieve greatness. They never grow to greatness. Why not? Because the two young lions in this lament are two kings of Israel, both who never reigned even more than three months. A short reign. Immature lions. Verse 3 tells us the first young lion is Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz, who succeeded his father Josiah. Josiah was killed in the battle of Megiddo, a battle he ought not to have been fighting in, but nonetheless, he did fight and was killed. 2 Kings 23, verse 30 is the reference for that. And so the people came, and with Josiah dead, they took his son, Jehoahaz, and they raised him up to be king. And his long kingship lasted three months. Verse 4 goes on and tells us the young lion was caught in a pit and taken to Egypt. That's one of the ways that we know that this is Jehoahaz. He was the king of the last of the kings of Judah who was taken captive into Egypt after his three-month reign. He was taken in 608 B.C. Verse 5 continues to follow the history. When she saw, that is when Judah saw that their king was taken, the young lion was taken, it says, as she waited, her hope was lost. And the people realized Jehoahaz ain't coming back. In fact, he died in Egypt. So they waited. He never returned. And so they came up with the second lion. She took another of her cubs. This would be Jehoahaz's brother and made him a young lion. And this young lion is Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin, who is also named Jeconiah, also called Coniah by the Lord. He also would reign exactly three months. The lament here skips over a brother because first there was Jehoahaz and second there was Jehoiakim who actually reigned 11 years and then died and was buried with his fathers. His evil, his wickedness didn't quite reach the heights of his older brother Jehoahaz who was captured by Egypt or of his younger brother Jehoiachin which is remarkable because Jehoiachin reigned only three months and was one of the most wicked kings in Judah's history. How much can you do in three months? I'm barely getting started three months into the year. You know, it's amazing here. And in verse 9, it tells us after his three-month reign, he was taken captive by Babylon in 597 B.C. And again, I point out, neither of these young lions matured beyond Kafir, the young lion, to become Labi, the great lion. Why not? Listen to what the Bible says in description of both of these two wicked kings. Verse 3, He learned to tear his prey, he devoured men. That's Jehoahaz. And if you skip down to verse 6, He learned to tear his prey, he devoured men. That's Jehoiachin. He destroyed their fortified towers and laid waste their cities and the land and its fullness were appalled because of the sound of his roaring. This guy was brutal. And by the way, fortified towers, some of your versions might say widows. And that is either that he ripped off the homes of widows or perhaps it's using the picture of a widow of an empty house or of his destruction or of his sending men off to battle and causing widows. Any way you look at it, it's not pretty. These two kings were rapacious. (laughs) They were ravenous. They were rebellious. So Lord, why in the world would you choose these two for your lament? Of all the kings of Judah, why not David? I'm going to talk about a lion. Let's go straight to David or perhaps Hezekiah or at least, Lord, their father Josiah. I mean, these guys are lions. Why choose these two losers? Because the elegy is of the downfall of Judah. 
And the Lord in this lament selects out two of the worst kings who reigned only a short time as a picture of the overall crash and burn of the kingdom of Judah. These two exemplified in their reign and in their short rules the wickedness of the whole people that brought the country to its knees. But there's something else to be learned in this lament. And that is simply the Lord doesn't measure greatness by power. He doesn't measure greatness by nobility or by success. God measures greatness by obedience, humility, and self-sacrifice. To God, that is glory. That is great. We know this because in Revelation chapter 5, John sees the title deed of planet Earth rolled up as a scroll and sealed and nobody can open it. And John in this vision is so upset by this he begins to weep. Revelation 5 verse 4 says, I wept greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping, behold, the lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And so John looks and he sees this majestic, glorious lion who goes over and tears open the seal with his teeth. And that's not how it happened. John looks and the Bible tells us, I saw standing between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. The elder says, look at the lion of Judah. John looks and it is a slain lamb. It's Jesus. Because that's how God measures greatness. How did the lion of the tribe of Judah overcome so as to rescue back or to save that title deed from planet earth? How did he do that? Self-sacrifice. Humility. Obedience to God the Father. And so in his death, Jesus, the greatness of Judah, became the sacrificial lamb. But when the great lion returns, no one's going to question his right to rule. He bought it with his own blood, just as he bought our salvation. Well, that's the first half of the lament, a lament for the lions. The second half may sound familiar to what we studied in Ezekiel 15 and Ezekiel 17. It's a lament for the vine. Verse 10, Your mother was like a vine in your vineyard. If you have a King James Bible, that that reads like a vine in your blood. And the word there, vineyard or blood, it is blood. It's dom in the Hebrew. It's the word blood. Your mother was like a vine in your blood. And the picture is a picture of inheritance, uh, of a lineage, of the blood of Judah. Okay, So your mother was a vine among you, planted by the waters. It was fruitful and full of branches because of abundant waters. And it had strong branches, Fit for scepters of rulers. Now, now wait a minute. Remember when we studied the vine? The story of the, the empty vine back in chapter 15? The vine's useless. A vine disconnected is not usable for... You can't even use it for a walking stick. Because a disconnected vine, once it dries up, becomes as thin as paper and wastes away and just crumbles. And yet here... This vine, fruitful, full of branches because of abundant waters, it had strong branches fit for scepters of rulers. This is a unique vine. God is saying, Judah, I created in you the power to be more than you even are, to be a ruler, to be a ruling class, to be the scepter of all Israel. And its height was raised above the clouds so that it was seen in its height with the mass of its branches. So all the branches of the vine of Israel and yet the great vine of Judah. Ruling, powerful, strong as a scepter. But it was plucked up in fury. It was cast down to the ground. And the east wind dried up its fruit. Its strong branch was torn off so that it withered. The fire consumed it. And now... It's planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. And fire has gone out from its branch and it has consumed its shoots and its fruit. So there is not in it a strong branch, a scepter to rule. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. Well written, not only is Ezekiel presenting a lamentation, but he's saying, this has become the lament of my heart. This is heartbreaking, not just in its reading, but in its reality. 
The idea behind this part of the lament is there is no scepter left to rule in Judah. But was it really over? Or might there yet be a branch for a scepter? We go back to Genesis 49, verse 10, where old Jacob said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There's a hope. There's a promise. Even for the lament of the vine that became a strong scepter, but now is broken, there is still a branch. There is still a branch strong enough to be the scepter of Judah. And you know exactly who I'm talking about here. But think about this. When the exiles return from Babylon, they are returned the right of self-rule. So, in essence, the scepter was still there. They they still could make decisions for themselves. They could still rule over themselves. Oh, they would be a vassal state through the years until Jesus came. But through all those 400 or so years, they still had the right of self-rule. Capital punishment was allowed. They could make that choice. They could make that call. Self-rule. Until Rome said, no more. Rome removes the scepter from Judah. You Bible students know this. What Jacob said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. You will have rule over yourself until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Until he comes. So the scepter cannot depart until this Messiah comes, this messianic figure. And on the day in Jerusalem, on that day when Rome declared no more self-rule, for the people in Judea, for the Jewish people. They're upstarts. They're a problem. Take away the right of capital punishment. Take away the right of self-rule. And that day in history, as the rabbis and the priests wept in the streets of Jerusalem, a young 12-year-old boy was in the temple talking with, astounding, the priest there with his knowledge and understanding, far beyond his years. Shiloh was right there. Shiloh had come before the scepter departed. And it's God's plan all along. They thought the scepter was broken, but the scepter was just 12 years old. The scepter was there among them. However, that even being the case, they would crucify the only legitimate heir to David's throne. And you would think in that moment, well, it's over, the scepter's broken. And yet we know that Jesus resurrected hung around for 40 days, ascended back to the Father. Ever since then, two and a half millennia, Israel has never had a king to rule on David's throne. After Zedekiah is taken away to Babylon, and they went into Babylonian captivity, even though they came back and had self-rule, 500 years, Jesus comes along. 2,000 years since then. And Israel has never had a king to sit on the throne. They have Benjamin Netanyahu. You know? Zippy Livni. And they're in peace talks, as you know. These peace talks for the Israelis and the Palestinians resumed in Washington, D.C. this last uh, Tuesday or Monday. And the world continues. It's astounding to me. It's just astounding. The world continues to press Israel to make concessions. To give up And so, you may have read this in the news, they just agreed to a release of 104 terrorists. We're talking known terrorists. Releasing 104 of them just so we can go back to the bargaining table. What did the Palestinians give up to go back to the bargaining table? Nothing. Zip. Zippy. (laughs) Um, Netanyahu has also indicated this week a willingness to give up 86% of Judea and Samaria. Now I read that and I went, Benny, no! (laughs) What are you thinking? Well, Benjamin is not a Yahoo. He knows what he's doing. (laughs) And I honestly think this. I honestly think that he is playing a card that he's got to play. But I think he knows something. I think he knows that they're not going to take it. Because the whole idea is not a Palestinian state. 
you know this, the whole idea is the destruction of Israel. That's what they're up against. Meanwhile, Mahmoud Abbas says not a single Jew will be allowed to reside anywhere in the new Palestinian state. While there are minarets all over Israel. I think everyone's missing ultimately the point. The great lion and the true vine, Yeshua HaMashiach, is coming soon. It's his land. He's going to make it work. Shift gears a bit with me now. Chapter 20. The lament is over and we now enter a new section of Ezekiel's prophecies, although it refers back to an earlier time. Verse 1, chapter 20. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, this will be the seventh year of their exile of Ezekiel's exile, in the fifth month, on the tenth of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Do you come to inquire of me? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Or for crying out loud... Are you kidding? Now why would God react that way? The date is August 15th, 591 B.C. On this date, these same elders we've already seen, we saw them back in chapter 14. These guys have shown up now at Ezekiel's house. They want to sit down and take counsel with the great prophet. And I believe because of what we saw in chapter 14 and God's reaction and response to them here, these guys are there either to ingratiate themselves to Ezekiel, or to try to legitimize their leadership among the exiles. We're cool. We're talking to Ezekiel too. But their hearts were not in it. They had idolatry in their hearts. God's already called them out on that. And so in chapter 20, and it's a long chapter, but we move actually quickly because it is a history. What the Lord does in response to these elders is rather than give them consultation, He gives them instruction, a history lesson. Will you judge them? Will you judge them, son of man? God says to Ezekiel. Make them know the abominations of their fathers. And say to them, thus says the Lord God. On the day when I chose Israel, and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob, and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God, on that day I swore to them, to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. I said to them, Cast away, each of you, the detestable things of his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me. And they were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt Then I I resolved to pour out my wrath on them, to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Note that. But I acted for the sake of my name. That it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. For the first time in Scripture... We learn here that while in the midst of the land of Egypt, the people were completely idolatrous. This is not even Mount Horeb. This is not the golden calf. This is not down the line. This is in Egypt. This is the root of the idolatry problem of the Jewish people. God says, while you were in Egypt, you were idol worshippers. It was happening right there. In fact, uh, note this. It's the first part of this history. They walked like an Egyptian. They did. Long before the Bengals had that 80s hit song. That dance song, Walk Like an Egyptian. You know, Susanna Hoff would look so sultry as she sang those words. And I always thought, yeah, it's a cool dance. Everybody, you know, walk like an Egyptian. And she would sing that. And at the time, I thought nothing of it, right? Who would? It's just it's a dumb dance song. I don't know. I don't know. What are they getting at? Hey, man, do what the Egyptians do. Be like the world. Do our thing. 
Egypt is always a picture of the world in the scriptures. You Bible students know that. And the people were walking like Egyptians. Long before that song was sung by the Bengals, God told His people, don't sing it. Don't dance along. Do not walk like an Egyptian. But they did. And again, until this passage, we only have hints of the Egyptian idolatry. We didn't really know that's what was going on. Joshua 24.14 hints at it. He said, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. That's the only other time where we have an implicit reference to idol worship in Egypt. We know what happened later, but that far back. Well, Joshua had seen it. Joshua knew. The sin of idolatry was already embedded in their hearts before the golden calf incident. They were just doing what they knew to do. They had been raised in it. How many of you were not raised in the church? How many of you were raised in the church? Okay. How many of you were raised? (laughs) See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Whether you were raised going to church with all the church traditions of whatever denomination or background you come out of, or you were raised not going to church, you still had traditions... You still have things that were embedded in your thinking, in your heart. All of us together, when we come to Jesus Christ, need to take those traditions and set them aside for the truth of His Word and the voice of His Spirit. That's the only way that we can walk out of some of the mess that we were raised with. Some of the stuff that's inside us, we don't even know is there. And it affects our thinking. Israel here had their thinking affected by that idolatry they grew up with. Think about that. All the tradi- If you moved to an island somewhere, would you still celebrate Christmas? Would you? Why? Well, because that's how I was raised. That's what we do. We watch Charlie Brown every year. This is our thing. No, would you still keep And that's what they were doing. They were keeping what they knew and God was saying, stop it. Cut it off. Leave it behind. Let it go. When we come out of Egypt, that is the world, and into the light of the Gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, we are called to leave behind anything that would hinder that relationship. Christians, do we? Have we left it all behind? Now, I'm not saying that as a judgment as much as a point of conviction in my life. Have I really left behind the walking like an Egyptian? Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And yet I marvel at the patience of God. How amazing He's looking at the people in Egypt. He's saying, okay, I want you to put away those stuff, those things. I'm going to take you into the promised land. And they keep worshiping their idols. And the Lord says, you know what my heart had to do? I wanted to wipe them out right there. He says long about verse 8. But I acted for my name's sake. What does that mean exactly? The name is the nature. How you're known is the reflection of, uh, of who you are. And the name of God, the nature of God, is best characterized above all other things by grace. Grace over everything else. That doesn't mean it precludes everything else. It just means grace is the one thing. If, if the Lord could choose one thing for us to know about Him, that's it. Grace. He says, but for my name's sake, I didn't wipe him out. For righteousness' sake, he should have. But because grace is the essence of God's character, he says, I acted for my name's sake, and I brought them out of Egypt. Even though they were idolatrous, even though they were sinners, I brought them out. Because grace is always the greater picture of God. And I'll go out on a limb and even say, grace is greater as a picture of God than righteousness is. But God's righteous, Rick. I know. Absolutely. 100%. Unequivocally. Totally righteous. But He would rather you know His grace. Which is why salvation is an issue of grace first. 
and righteousness later. What does that mean? It means I come to Jesus broken, messed up, idolatrous, and I say, save me! Be my Lord! And He says, I will. He doesn't say, put away the idols now, think about it. He says, I'm going to save you now. And together, let's clean house. Let's start to remove the idols one by one together. His righteousness removes the idols. His grace delivers the people. And that's what happened. And that's where the history, at least according to Ezekiel 20, that's where it begins. As His grace overwhelms. They walked like an Egyptian. Secondly, they were wicked in the wilderness. Wicked in the wilderness, verse 10. So I took them out of the land of Egypt. I brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances by which, if a man observes him, them he will live. Verse 11 is an entire sermon right there. If you live by my ordinances, you'll live. Also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my ordinances, by which, if a man observes them, he will live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. I've had it. I had it in Egypt. I gave them a chance. They blew it. I've had it in the wilderness. I'm going to wipe them out. Verse, what is it? 14, but I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations before whose sight I have brought them out. More grace. Should have wiped them out. Didn't do it. Why not? Because I want them to know me by my nature. My nature of grace. Also, verse 15, I swore to them in the the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands, because they rejected my ordinances. And as for my statutes, they did not walk in them. They even profaned my Sabbaths for their heart continually when after their idols. Idolatry in the wilderness just like in Egypt. Yet my eyes spared them rather than destroying them, and I did not cause their annihilation in the wilderness. All the way, it was a two-year trek, leaving Egypt all the way to Kadesh Barnea. On the border of the Promised Land, God led His people. He took the time there at Mount Horeb to give them the commandments, led them on then to Kadesh Barnea, and at that place, you know the story, they rebelled. You want to take us in there? There's big people there. Giants, we're like grasshoppers, they'll eat us alive, we can't go in there. And the people's heart failed, except for Joshua and Caleb. Mad dog Caleb, they they were ready to go. Let's go get us some lions. You know, or in Lord of the Rings lingo, let's go hunt some orc. <laughs> let's go get them, he said. And the people freaked out, and their hearts failed, and their faith went down the drain. Well, God should have wiped them out right there. He didn't. He said, I think what we need is a little dependency training. And so for 40 years they wandered. There's kind of a second part to this. They were wicked in the wilderness, but then there's wickedness in the wilderness the next generation. Verse 18. I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers or keep the ordinances, their ordinances or defile yourself with their idols. Our parents had certain ordinances. Our grandparents had uh, you know, certain statutes. Our families, all of us, have some idolatry back there. And I believe the Lord would say to you, as He has said to me, don't walk in that, you walk with me. You walk my way, not their way. But God, their traditions were good. That's fine. Walk with me. Go my way. I am the Lord your God, verse 19. Walk in my statutes. Keep my ordinances and observe them. Sanctify my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, nor were they careful to observe my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. They profaned my Sabbaths. So 
I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. You know what happened. But I withdrew my hand and acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Also I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them among the lands. Deuteronomy 28, he swore to them in the wilderness he would scatter them among the nations and disperse them among the lands. You can go back and read it there. Because they had not observed my ordinances, but had rejected my statutes, and had profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were on the idols of their fathers. Wickedness in the wilderness. Before they even entered the promised land, the Lord made it clear that His people would end up scattered among the nations of the world, and gang, the Babylonian exile was stage one. That was just the beginning of dispersion. How do you turn a relationship with God into a wilderness wandering? And it's very simple. Three wilderness issues are all there in verse 24. They disdained God's word in that they rejected His statutes and ordinances. They profaned His Sabbaths. They wouldn't keep the day off. That just freaks me out. I don't understand that. I have enough trouble. I want more days off. No offense. But I love my days off. They profaned them. And their eyes were on the idols of their fathers. They maintained their idolatry. So those are three ways that you can distance yourself from God if you choose to disdain God's word, profane His Sabbaths, and maintain idolatry. Disdain God's word. Jesus says in John 14.23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And what happens then? Well, my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and will make our abode with Him. They profaned His Sabbaths. They kept right on working. They kept doing things on Sabbath. Sabbath wasn't just about resting. It wasn't about being a couch potato. It was about communing with the Lord. It was about taking one day in seven and saying, today, nothing but Jesus. Today I'm going to worship. I'm going to open up the Word. I'm going to fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what I'm going to do today. That was the idea of Sabbath. And they profaned it. And I was thinking about that this week, that the focus of every single false religion, every cult, every bogus creed, the focus is work. Every religion in the world, except for Christianity, is about work. Well, Rick, I've been to some churches that demanded an awful lot of work, and they were way off. But isn't there a lot of work going on here for VBS? Only if it's coming from a place of joy. Leslie might not want me to say this, I'll say it anyway. If you're volunteering for VBS under compulsion this week, go home. Don't do it. You come in peace. You come in the joy of the Spirit. You come because you want to be here. Anything we do in the Lord should come from that place, compelled by Christ's love, not compelled by guilt over needing to do lots of work. They profaned the Sabbath. They maintained their idolatry and they pushed back against the grace of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 says, Let us fear if while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard, speaking of Israel, did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. They didn't believe that if they took, for example, the Sabbath year off, they didn't believe that God would still provide for them all the food of the land that they needed. They had no faith for it. They said, we can't take the Sabbath year off. So we're just going to keep right on working because we got to eat, Lord. And God said, but if you take the Sabbath year off, I'll cause the fields to grow everything anyway. And then the next year, as you're planting, I'll still cause it to grow, so that then the year after that, when you actually get the fruit of your labor, you still will never have missed a meal. I got you covered. They said, no, no, we got to work. And God said, profaning my Sabbath. That's, by the way, you know the reason for 70 years of captivity. 70 years to make up for 490 years of skipping Jubilee. Of skipping the sabbatical year. So God says, all right, 
We'll give the land the rest it deserves. Seventy years. You go away. That's the only way I can keep you guys from working is to put you in captivity. And so he does it. Verse 25, continuing on. I also gave them statutes that were not good and ordinances by which they could not live. And I pronounced them unclean because of their gifts or their offerings in that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire so that I might make them desolate in order that they might know that I am the Lord. The idea there, I gave them statutes that were not good. The idea is God saying, I gave them over. I said, alright, you want to live by bad statutes? You want to do foolish things? You want to prof- I Feel free. You go right ahead and do that, just as Paul wrote in Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Why isn't God stepping up right now in the church? Why isn't He saying, Churches, stop doing what you're doing. Don't accept blatant immorality. Don't just welcome that with open arms. Keep preaching the truth. Why isn't God speaking out? He's just giving people over to their choice. He's always done that. If you want to live by the lust of your heart, that's your choice. I will, as he says, give them statutes which are not good and ordinances by which they could not live. Feel free if that's the way you want to be. Therefore, verse 27, Son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Yet in this your fathers have blasphemed me by acting treacherously against me. When I had brought them into the land, which I swore to give to them, and they saw every high hill and every leafy tree, and they offered there their sacrifices, and there they presented the provocation of their offering. We're talking about idol worship in the, in the groves and the high places. There also they made their soothing aroma, and there they poured out their drink offerings. And then I said to them, What is the high place to which you would go? So its name is called Bama to this day. Not Obama. <laughs> I'm going to name the high places of idolatry Bama. I could have so much fun with that. I'm not going to. I'm just going to let this go. Bama, the Hebrew word Bama. This name literally means the heights or high places. It was the descriptive word for the places of pagan worship. Bama. I will name it Bama. Now, Charles Feinberg in his commentary points something out. And it's interesting to think. He says Ezekiel may have been using a word play here. Because the word Bama does mean the high places. But if you divide the word and speak it as two words, Ba means go, Ma means wither. Go wither. You want to go up to your high places? I will name it Ba Ma. Go wither. The vine would go up to worship pagan deities and would wither and die because of it. Verse 30. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and play the harlot after their detestable things? When you offer your gifts, when you cause your sons to pass through the fire, speaking of Molech worship, you are defiling yourselves with all your idols to this day. And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What comes into your mind will not come about. When you say, we will be like the nations, like the tribes of the lands, serving wood and stone. And note this, that phrase, what comes into your mind, is literally what comes into your spirit. And we've talked about this. Our spirits receive one of two ways. Either our spirits, the essence of who we truly are, we are all triune, you know that. Spirit, soul, and body. The spirit is who we are. The soul is our intellect. The body is the flesh, right? We can either receive by His Spirit into our spirits, or we can receive into our spirits from our souls. We can think it through. And let that impact. The soul's kind of the middle ground, the battleground, really. The body on one side, the soul, the battleground, the spirit on the other side. 
And we can be inspired by the Spirit to affect our thinking, which then affects our behavior. Or we can behave in such a way that it affects our thinking, which then affects our spirit and cuts us off from the Holy Spirit of the Lord. And God says, what comes into your spirit will not come about. If you've got stuff coming up into your spirit from the wrong direction, from the world, it's not going to happen like the world says it's going to happen. If you do these things, you'll be happy. It doesn't work. The world's plans never work out. Well, what about rich people? Yeah, just give them time. They will either become poor people, or they will become dead people, or they will become miserable people. Unless those riches, unless that unworldly mammon, or, or uh, ungodly mammon, as Jesus put it, unless it's used for the kingdom, unless he turns it around and... I won't get off on that. What comes into your spirit? Would you rather have the Holy Spirit download, or would you rather have the flesh upchuck? That's really the question, I think, to ask. Sorry if that was a little too theological for some of you. Romans 15, 13, Paul writes, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of His Holy Spirit. Spiritual download. And that's the desire of my heart. Romans 15, 13, great verse to memorize and know. In this whole history, God makes it clear that when worldliness enters mind It enters spirit. It's a lie. The things of the world do not come about. And we see it in Israel. That's the whole reason we have Israel. Talking with Mark Landis today, he made the comment, you know what, Israel is like a big screen TV so that God can show us what it's like, can explain to us in his interaction with that people what it's like for all of us. That's why they're the chosen people. And they walk like Egyptians. So do we. They were wicked in the wilderness, so often are we. And they withered on the vine, so do we, when we deny the Holy Spirit, even if we're living in the promised land. So what does the Lord do with all of this? He offers them, number four, a wonderful future. For all of the wickedness, for all of the walking after other nations, for all that they did, The withering on the vine, He still offers them a wonderful future. Verse 33, As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God, and I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me, and I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they, speaking of the rebels, will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord, and that is all future prophecy. This is not speaking of the return of Babylon. It is much bigger than that. He's talking about what Paul talks about later. When Paul says in Romans 11.26, all Israel shall be saved. Then you may read that and say, all Israel will be saved? Why? Because they're Jews? No, because all Israel will believe in Jesus. All Israel? All the Jewish people are going to come to faith in Jesus? Really? Paul, when he says all Israel, is referring to that people who receive Messiah, Jesus Christ, receive His grace, not those of Israel who rebel. Zechariah makes it more clear. Zechariah 13, verse 8, It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. Two-thirds. Two-thirds of the Jewish people will be cut off and perish. Why? Because they will not accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because they will stand in their rebellion against their own Messiah. Two-thirds will be cut off. And I will bring the third part through the fire, the tribulation. 
I will refine them as silver is refined. Test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. And I tell you that all Israel at the end of the tribulation who have survived because they've come to faith in Jesus will be saved. But not the rebels. As Ezekiel prophesies, the rebels will not come into the land. Verse 39, As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go serve everyone his idols. Go ahead. Go do it. Want to go sin? But later, you will surely listen to me. In my holy name, you will profane no longer with your gifts and with your idols. For on my holy mountain, on the high mountain of Israel, declares the Lord God, there the whole house of Israel, all of them, will serve me in the land. He's talking about the millennial kingdom. There I will accept them. There I will seek your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your holy things. As a soothing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered and I will prove myself holy among you in the sight of the nations. How does God prove His holy uniqueness? He keeps His promise. He keeps His covenant. He does what frankly is absolutely politically impossible. God's going to do it. And you will know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the land which I swore to give your forefathers. And there you will remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evil things that you have done. God is not relishing that idea. He's not saying, man, you're going to feel bad for what you've done. He's saying it's a matter of truth. You will look back at what you've done and you will wonder why. How could I ever have... Have you ever felt that way? You've come to Christ, you accept His grace, and you look back to the other side of grace and go, how could I have ever lived that way? Why did I... I was so stupid. I had no idea what I know. I wish I had known now what I... You know? And God says that's going to happen. Verse 44, Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake. That is by grace. And not according to your evil ways or according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. The history of Israel. The story of God's grace. 